All right, so Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We have um, come now to the end. All the way. The book of Hebrews, remember, is written to exhort Christians and to remind them of the sufficiency of Christ. The ways that, one of the ways that we've been saying it throughout the series is Christ is better. The point of the book of Hebrews or the summary of the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Um, and so it's, re- it's written to remind us of the sufficiency of Christ through, and throughout our study, we've heard that message. Christ is better. The generation of Christians the book was historically written to was foolishly considering going back to doomed Jerusalem to continue offering animal sacrifices. We talked about that through Hebrews 10. You know, the warning was, hey guys, the prophecy is coming that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And this book was maybe written around 60-something, 63, 65. And we know historically that the the destruction of Jerusalem came in AD 70. And so these guys are thinking, hey, let's go back to Jerusalem so we can start offering animal sacrifices again. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them If you go back there, not only are you trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus, you're going to your death. You're going to your eternal destruction and doom. Um, There will be, we talked about this too when we went through Hebrews, you know, the the, uh, devastation at the destruction of Jerusalem was beyond what we can comprehend with our minds this morning. They, you know, it was written that the, the Romans crucified Jews and it was said that you were walking through forests of Jews. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning them, do not go back there. Do not go back there. And so that's the historical context. Jesus is better and don't go back to offer these animal sacrifices. It's going to be not only your spiritual destruction, but your physical destruction as well. And so this letter corrected them and reminded them that the blood of the Lamb of God is perfect for all time. Christ's blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. The letter is an exhortation to a community of believers who have missed the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They've missed it. They're thinking they need to add to what Jesus has already done. They believe that they need to add to their faith various works, and specifically they think they need to resurrect the uh, shadow rituals of the Levitical priesthood. They need to resurrect these rituals and start Um, sacrificing the lamb, the real, you know, lambs again. Well, the lamb of God has come. Why do we need a a lamb or a goat or a bull? And so it was written to correct that, that it was written to tell them that the priesthood of Christ is better than the old priesthood. The priesthood of Christ is superseded and it is better than the old way. And so chapters 11 and 12 are some of the most glorious sections of Scripture to help us explicitly understand faith. We just covered this last few weeks. 11 and 12 are some of the most gloriously uh, written scriptures to help us understand faith and justification by faith. And why were they written in this letter? Well, because these are Christians who somehow have come to believe that they must add to the work of Christ for salvation. They're thinking that they are working and we can think of sacrificing, offering their way to eternal life and to the Father. They, are, they think they're having to work to get to the Father, ultimately. Not trusting in Jesus alone to do that. Okay? So before we go on, let's go ahead and read the chapter. Hebrews 13. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable, and among all, the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have no, not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him, thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought you up brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So, like I said, Hebrews 11 and 12 are some of the most glorious sections concerning faith and justification by faith alone and faith. And so what you have when you get to Hebrews chapter 13 is kind of funny, and I don't know if you noticed it. This is an exhortation, and it ends, this exhortation ends And it's written to a bunch of believers who are struggling with justification by faith. And what is this exhortation? This last little bit is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Isn't that kind of funny? (laughs) They're struggling with works. They're struggling with, you know, believing by faith. And Paul ends, well, whoever wrote Hebrews ends by saying, do this, do this, don't do this. And so sometimes... um, you know, that it's, it's kind of funny. We may say, well, Paul, you should have thought about, you know, just end at 12 talking about faith. Just close it off there. Why does he go on to here? Well, what's happening here is 
The Holy Spirit is bringing this home. It's bringing this letter home, this call to trust Jesus alone. And what I, the way I like to think about it is he's opening up the hood and letting us see how this engine runs. He's popping the hood and he's, he's showing us what faith working looks like. This is what faith working looks like. And so the text in 13 is built on all of what has come before in this letter, but I want to specifically point to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, for what I believe is the overarching tone of what we are told in Hebrews 13. So if you look at that verse, it says it's talking about kingdom gratitude, being grateful for receiving a kingdom, and for acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I believe those things color everything that follows. They color everything that follows. As God describes for us how to live faithfully, it begins with kingdom gratitude and acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So throughout the book of Hebrews, we see the, we've seen the arguments for what is not acceptable. You do not go back and offer sacrifices for what is not acceptable. It's not acceptable to offer sacrifices and offerings now that Jesus has come. And so I believe what follows in this final chapter is describing in part what is acceptable worship. What does acceptable worship look like in the life of the believer? He says, let brotherly love continue. Verse one this is the same word uh, for love that Paul uses in Romans 12.10 when he says, be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. I think in that verse in Romans, we get to peer into what this brotherly love looks like, what it is for brotherly love to abide. Verse two, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers um, or how we read it in the New King James, don't forget to entertain strangers. And so immediately we think of our modern day hospitality, our modern you know, conception of hosting people, being hospitable. And, um, and that's fine, that's great. But we should remember what this uh, looked like in the historical context as well. So I want to say we should be motivated to be more hospitable in our context. Have people over for dinner, do nice things, help out the stranger, help out uh, the, the person who needs help. Uh, but in the context that this is written, I want you to think about this is written at a time when Christians were routinely persecuted and um, uh, ratted out to the authorities. And this is a letter saying, hey, lean in. It, you think they could justify not hosting the stranger? I don't know their motives. I don't know their intentions. I don't even know what they believe. And you want me to bring them into this? Expose our family? Expose ourselves to this? And the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect it. Continue to do it. Do it. Now, if they could be exhorted to continue to do it, can we be exhorted to continue to do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if these Christians were charged not to forget to entertain strangers, then when the stakes were much higher, then we certainly must heed that exhortation as well. In Matthew 25, 35 through 46, Jesus talks about how we treat the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And in that, in that verse in Matthew, he tells his sheep, he says, when you fed them, you were nourishing me. You were welcoming me. You were clothing me. You were visiting me. When you treated those people that way, you were doing that to me. And then he turns to the goats and he says, you didn't do it to those people, and therefore you didn't do it to me. And so the 
Hebrews goes on to say that by entertaining strangers, some have unknowingly entertained angels. Now, we could think of Abraham when him and Sarah received the promise. They host the three men. If you remember back in that account, those three men, well, one of them turns out to be Jesus and the, these two you know, angels, and they host these people. And turns out, hey, this was a really good idea to host them for lunch. Um, that's in Genesis 18. And so I don't know if, you know, from Hebrews 13, if, if we should necessarily be thinking every time we encounter a stranger, every time we encounter somebody that, you know, God has put before us to show kindness to, I don't know if we should be thinking, like, this could be an angel. I don't know if that's literally what we uh, should be thinking. Maybe we should. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that we should treat strangers, we should treat those people in such a way that we would not be embarrassed if they were. We would not be embarrassed if it was Jesus himself. We treat those people in such a way, the same way we would treat Jesus himself. So like I said, I don't know if we should just consciously think like this could be an angel. I better, you know, you know, buy them whatever they want off the McDonald's menu, not just get them the dollar burger, whatever the thing may be, you know. Like, this could be an angel. Like we, but we should treat them with a way that we would not be embarrassed if it were. I think that's at least, at least one of the takeaways from that. All right, verse 4 says, these are, you know, these are kind of rapid-fire different things, so we're going to kind of just track with what the text is saying, okay? We're going to try and cover the whole chapter, not just get stuck up on one of these specific topics. So we're going to keep moving here. And by the way, if you want to talk more about any one of these specific things, on Wednesday nights, we're going to finish, through, finish out through Hebrews, and we have that opportunity there. So take advantage of that. All right, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It is true that we cannot make people see marriage as honorable. We can see that clearly in our day and age uh, you know, very well. We cannot make people see marriage as honorable. But it's also true that how we conduct ourselves in public and private as husbands loving our wives, like Christ loved the church, as wives submitting to their own husbands who are their heads, by doing that, we will be those who hold the Christ-exalting uh, institution of marriage up as honorable. We can't make people see it as honorable, but we can hold it up as honorable by, by faithfully filling our roles. So that being said, I want to say, because marriage is hugely attacked in our day. The family is hugely attacked in our day. But, and, and, and as Christians, we can, look and we can look at the world and we can say, see, they are messing this up for us. They are attacking. And are they attacking? Yes. Are they messing it up? Yes. But let me tell you, the most devastating assault on marriage today is not coming from the world. It's not coming from homosexuals. It's not coming from cross-dressers. The most devastating assault on marriage today is coming from Christians in their marriages. Because we're the ones who are tasked to hold this up as honorable. We are the ones who are tasked with holding this up. Yes, it is assaulted by the world, but, but Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. We don't need to act like marriage and God's way is some kind of fragile kingdom that can be shaken. No, it cannot be shaken. And so the problem comes when we start to portray, we bear the name of Christ and we start to portray a marriage uh, that is not Christ-exalting. 
Okay? So, of course, the warning is that God will judge the sexually immoral, the adulterous. And again, this includes homosexuals and cross-dressers. But listen, it also includes fornicators and adulterers. Both those who have physically abandoned their spouses and those who have done so in their hearts. So is this a warning to us today? Yes. Is this something we need to heed today? Absolutely. I'm not so naive to think that this doesn't apply to anybody in this room today. It, it certainly applies to all of us. And I'm, but it, it also is going to step on some toes because there's a lot of people here and there's a lot of situations here. And this, and this is a reality that we need to take to heart. What is this telling us today? Okay? So, one of the ways that God will judge is through Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross to take the judgment of God, to take the wrath of God for his people. Another one of the ways that God will judge is if you don't hide in Christ, if you are not washed with the lamb, then he will judge you. If you tell God, I don't want to stand in Jesus before you, then he'll say, okay, then you stand before me. And if you stand before God in your own little skin, in your own little blood, it will be a terrible judgment. It will be a horrible judgment. And so, I want to tell you today, just like the text goes on to say, don't harden your heart. Today, don't harden your heart. Repent. Talk to somebody today about your sin. Don't let it fester in the dark. Bring it to the light. And you say, well, I'll be embarrassed. Well, what if I'm the only one struggling with this? Listen, shame is a God-given thing to, to ha- that he gives his children to bring us out of, our sh- out of our sin. His children, when we fail, when we fall, we experience guilt and shame. And you know what? If we stay there, that's devastating and that's destructive. But if we move past the guilt and the shame, if we let that push us and point us to Jesus, That's what we need to let that do. It points us to Jesus to let us take our sin to him and take this away. Get this out of here. And so don't harden your heart. Don't keep it hidden. Talk to somebody about it today. Okay? Give them to Jesus. And you can either give them, and this is the promise from the Bible, you can either give them to Jesus, you can either expose them at the cross, or he will expose you. Nobody can keep their sins hidden forever. This scripture, that idea used to scare me to death as a high school student. Man! But you know what? And it is terrifying. It is scary. But at the same time, this should be a comfort to you because if you are his child, he will not let you stay stuck in your sin. And so the message to you today, to us right here in this little bitty room, you guys are my friends, I know you, but the message to us today, all of us, is don't harden your heart. Don't stay in your sin. Expose it to Jesus or he will expose you. Okay, let's keep going. Keep your life free from the love of money or um, don't be covetous. So the answer to envy is contentment. Be content with what you have. So we immediately obviously think of economic situations or material situations. And so the point is, if we think of it in that way, no matter what our economic situation is, What does he follow up that statement by saying? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Guess what? No matter if your bank account is really fat or really lean, you have Jesus and you can be content with Jesus. 
okay? Be content with what you have. And that will guard against envy. Um, let's keep going. He says, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, this is an inspirational quote. This is something that when we are walking through the fiery trial, when we are walking through the shadowy valley, we can take comfort in. It is inspirational. I don't mean that as an insult. It brings inspiration. But it is, it is so much more than an inspirational quote. This is actually from Deuteronomy 31.6. And it's quoted again in the book of Joshua. It's also quoted in Numbers both of these Old Testament instances, when it's quoted in the Old Testament context, it's, it's quoted in the context of conquest and judgment. So I want to read you Deuteronomy 31, 3 through 6. It says, The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do them as he did to Shehan and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land. When he destroyed them, the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So, might that context have any relevance to this letter and to this recipients? Yes, of course. So, remember what we read just before we got into chapter 13? I'm going to read it again. I alluded to it earlier. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom by which, uh, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So chapter 12 ex includes this explicit parallel connection to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, saying that these new covenant Christians have not come to that mountain. In, in Hebrews 12, we covered this. It says, you've not come to that mountain that cannot be touched. You have come to Mount Zion. You've not come to Mount Sinai, new covenant Christians. You've come to Mount Zion. So in the Exodus story, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai something like three months after leaving Egypt, and then they stay there for about 11 months. And it's during that time with that they're at Mount Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments, they receive the instructions for the tabernacle, and they construct it, they build it. And then shortly after they finish building the tabernacle and all the stuff that goes with worship in the tabernacle, they consecrate the place, they consecrate the priest, Shortly after that, it was time to move on. They stayed there, I think, something like, what is that, 14 months or so? And they, shortly after they leave Sinai is when the Lord tells Moses to send men to spy out the promised land, okay? He says, go spy out, send men to go spy out the promised land. And so 12 men go, and after 40 days, they come back. 10 men bring a bad report, they don't believe God. They don't believe his promise. And two men bring a good report. This is the uh, great picture of democratic society. Everybody sides with the majority. And it turns out really poorly for them. Um, and so Joshua and Caleb are the two spies who bring a good report. And they say, uh, no, guys, God has promised we can do this. Yes, the giants are big, but our God is bigger. And haven't you seen these grapes? They're 
It's an amazing land. They come back, you know, having to hold a cluster of grapes, two guys carrying it. You know, it's an incredible thing. You've seen that probably in like children's picture books, but guess what? It's real. So after, um, after Moses, well, Caleb gets up and he says, the Lord is with you. Do not fear. The Lord is with you. Do not fear. And they say, nah, no, not doing it. We can't do it. We're not doing it. We, we're not going. And so after they say no, God says, okay, you're not going. You will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You will not see the promised land. This generation will die. You will not go in. Joshua and Caleb will get to go in. You won't get to go in. And then you know what they do? They add sin to sin and they say, okay, we'll go, God. And God says, uh, too late for that. You will not go. They say, no, no, we'll go, we'll go. And they go up and guess what happens? They get defeated. And, and it says in, in that account, when they get defeated, because you have turned back, well, Moses warns them. He says, because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. You have turned back from following the Lord. You go up now, the Lord will not go with you. He said, you're going to the wilderness. Go that way. God's going that way. And they say, well, no, we'll go now. The Lord's not with you. And so when, when the book of Hebrews is giving them a warning saying, guys, don't go back that way. God said to go out this way. Don't go back to Jerusalem. And they're saying, maybe we should go back to Jerusalem. The warning is, if you go back, God's not going with you. If you go back, you're going at that alone and you will face a fiery end. But here, the exhortation, the encouragement, the inspiration is that these writers will go, God will not leave you nor forsake you. Trust God. Go with God. Okay? Verse 7 says, remember your leaders and imitate their faith. This is speaking about the congregation's shepherd elders. They're shepherds. And verse 8 probably goes with the next bit of text, verse 8. But it does serve to remind us that even the best, most faithful will eventually fail us or leave us one way or another. You know, you, you can think of a father in this way or a husband or a wife. You can have, uh, we just heard it with Amanda's grandma and grandpa. 67 years of faithfulness that you can see there. But one way or another, if we put all of our hope in people, if that's the only place where our hope is, even at that point of all that faithfulness, there will be, there will be a, an emptiness, a lack, a failure. And so the, the reminder in the next verse is that uh, Jesus will never fail us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, but with regard to the leaders, verse 17 continues speaking about the leaders, and it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So when Christians question, and Christians do this a lot, when Christians question if church membership in a local congregation under local elders or local shepherds is a legitimate thing, is, is a biblical thing, this is one of the places where we go and we answer that question definitively. We're told to obey and submit to our elders as those who will have to give an account Okay, as those who will have to give an account. And very practically speaking, 
Elders cannot give an account if they don't know who they are supposed to count. They have to give an account. That means they have to know who they're counting. Who am I giving an an account for? Am I giving an account? Do Do the elder shepherds of Christ Fellowship Church have to give an account to the members of uh, First Baptist Church? No. Do, they, do the elder shepherds of Christ Fellowship Church have to give an account for the shepherd or the uh, sheep of the Brethren Church? No. The elders have to know who to count in order to give an account. And so this is, a, this is one of those places that, that teaches us definitively that no, membership in a local congregation is a legitimate thing. It's a right thing. It's a good thing. And the author of Hebrews here is pointing them back to their elders and he's saying, hey, you need to submit and you need to obey. Now, um, when we talk about obedience and submitting to earthly authority, what immediately comes to our mind? Abuses, misuses of power, bad leaders. That immediately comes to our mind. Does this happen? Yes. Uh, We can probably find 10 examples in the news, you know, if we searched hard enough from, you know, yesterday. Does this happen? Yes. Did God know this would happen when he inspired the writer of Hebrews to pen these words? Yes, he knew it would happen. He He commands us to obey and submit anyway. Why? Why? Because obedience to our elders, just like the obedience of a wife to her husband or children to their parents, is ultimately obedience to the Lord. Obedience to our elders is obedience to the Lord. Now, again, we immediately think of abuses and of misuses of power, okay? But... but Obeying our elders, when we obey our elders, we are obeying the Lord. This also means, okay, this also means that if our elders are leading us away from the Lord, who we are obeying by obeying them, who we are submitting by submitting to them, if our elders are leading us away from the Lord or from obeying his holy word, our obligation is no different than an obligation of a wife or child to obey God rather than man. So when the disciples uh, were arrested and brought before the, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they said, you must stop preaching this message. Stop talking about this man who we paid off the guards to say is not raised from the dead. Stop talking about him and stop telling them what really happened. And what did they say? How are we supposed to obey you and not God? We can't, we can't do that. We must obey God, not you. Why? Because they were telling them to disobey God and obey us. If an elder tells you to disobey God and obey them, guess what we do to that elder? We say, no, not going to do it. (laughs) I don't think we would quite do that, but no. We say, no, not going to happen. We don't do that. Bye. No. You get that guy kicked out of the church, you get that guy, uh, you know, depending on what happens, you get that guy justice. You, you run him out, and if you can't do that, then you leave. And you try and save as many people as you can with you. That's what you do. And so it's no different. We try and, the, the point is, we try and complicate this. 
We try and complicate this with these examples of misuse of power, abuse, you know, an elder who is out of line. And we try and use those cases and those instances to try and justify this idea that we don't have to obey our elders and don't have to submit to them or a wife or a child. But that is not right. That is not good. That's not how this works. It's very simple. Why do you think it is we try and um, excuse ourselves and make it complicated? I think it's probably because we don't, re- we, bottom line is we don't want to obey and submit. We don't want to get out from this illusion that we have that we are the captains of our own destiny. We, we don't want to lose this illusion that we have that I am my own boss. I remember when me and EJ first got married, we had already, well, no, we, it was just before we got married, but we were on our own already. And, um, you know, we were adults. I was living in my apartment and she was living in her apartment and we had already bought each other Christmas presents and it was like, I don't know, December 22nd or something like that. And we said, we already got our Christmas presents. We're adults. We can celebrate Christmas whenever we want. And so we celebrated it then. We wanted to open our presents and we did. And it's this idea, you know, that's a stupid, you know, silly childish example. But the point is we, we become adults and we think, I'm my own boss now. I can do whatever I want. The only people I may have to answer to are the government and, the, you know, the law. But if I stay good, I'm, I'm good other than that. I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want. I can spend my money however I want. And the point of this exhortation is you need to think about that. The Lord is your Lord. The Lord is your Lord. And he has put over you grown adults living independently from mom and dad, shepherds and elders to keep watch over your souls. And that's a good thing. Okay? We don't want to give up control, and so we buck against this idea of submitting and obeying to elders, and, you know, it's not helpful. The other thing that's relevant here is in verse 18, he points out and he says, hey, pray for us. Pray for us. We're people. Do you think Paul does not recognize that, there, that bad things can happen when you give people power? Of course he knows this. And that's why he says, pray for us. Okay? So he, he goes on, he requests the uh, believers to pray for them. And it serves not only as a reminder that people are people and they make mistakes, but it also serves as a reminder that these regular old folks who he's talking to get to approach God. Just like I said in our children's lesson, they get to approach God themselves. What are they tempted to do? They're tempted to go back to the priest, go back to the system of sacrifice where they have to go to another earthly intermediate. They go to the priest to go to God. They go to an animal that goes to God. But what Jesus has done for us is Jesus has gone to God. Now, when we, through Jesus, what do we get to do? We get to go to God. And so by telling the, the uh, Christians this letter's written to, he says, you guys pray for us. I don't just pray for you. The priest doesn't just go for you. Jesus doesn't just go for you. You go to God through Christ. You get to go to God. That does not strike us. I see your faces. I see your faces. That does not strike us the way it should strike us. We get to talk in your bedroom when you're laying in a bed in your nightgown, in your underwear. You can talk to the creator of the universe. 
that does not strike us the way it should. You get to go to God. He can handle the problems. We get to go to him. We say, well, there's so much complication with elders and misuses. He says, go to God. Go to God. Pray about it. Pray for us. It's a beautiful thing. It is an incredibly beautiful thing. And um, it would be blasphemy if it weren't true. The old system was if, if a regular old run-of-the-mill Israelite went into the tabernacle and went beyond the bronze altar and tried to break into the holy of holies, do you know what would happen to that person? Death. His story of Uzzah reaching out and studying the ark, he touches it, he just touches it, God strikes him dead. And now in the new covenant, now because of the blood of Christ, you have been made a priest You can go to God, not just once a year. You can go to him every day. That's a beautiful thing. Verse 9 naturally flows from verse 8, and it says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. How do we guard against this? Well, part of the answer to this involves our own personal knowledge of Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And part of that, the other part of that, is that we submit to and obey our shepherds. They are there to guard They are there to help us, not stray this way, get too close to the edge where the ground is unsteady. Not stray over here and get too close to the woods where the wolves are way quick and can snatch you. They're there to guard us, okay? And so part of that is your own knowledge of the word of God and of who Jesus is, and part of that is you're trusting and submitting and obeying the shepherds that God has placed over you, okay? And we can consider what this actual letter is. It's a rebuke. It's a correction. These, these guys were erring. They were moving. They were wandering. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, guys, no, that's wrong. That's not right thinking. That's not right doctrine. Come back. Believe this other thing. Go back to what we told you. Come back. And so it's a beautiful thing. Um. So what God is interested in, um, remember, they're tempted to go back and offer the sacrifices. And uh, it says, verse 15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer us a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what God is interested in from us as Christians is the fruit that acknowledges his name. And what fruit acknowledges his name? Well, if we think of the Bible and we think of the New Covenant, one of the things we should, that should come to our mind when we think of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It literally bears the name. It literally acknowledges the name, the fruit of the Spirit. And so um, we should think of the fruit of the Spirit. And we could think of this as verbal praise or verbal you know, acknowledgement of God's power and working. And that's true. There's good and right uh, you know, psalms talk about this a sacrifice of our lips. But when we think of the verbal praise or the verbal acknowledgement, that can't happen apart from the fruit of the Spirit. It's not an either or. Um, So we can't verbally praise God and acknowledge God apart from the fruit of the Spirit, apart from faith that the Spirit gives us, apart from love that the Spirit gives us, apart from peace, patience, gentleness, kindness that the Spirit gives us. 
All right, verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have. Again, apart from the fruit of the Spirit, what good can we do? Nothing. Apart from the working of God, our good works are what? Filthy rags. There's no good we can do apart from God's working. And so, um, you know, in Corinthians, it talks about, what if I give my body away to be burned? And Paul says, if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's nothing. So, I think this is pointing us to, again, God's work and the fruit of the Spirit. All right. Well, I'm sorry we're going really fast. We're running out of time here. So we, we have in verses 20 and 21 a benediction. That's what we're going to, that's going to be our benediction today. So we'll cover that in a moment. And then verses 22 through 25 are this final charge that, and, the, and the final ex- instructions. And, and again, you'll notice in that part, he takes special care to point the congregation back to their leaders, those who are shepherding their souls. Okay, so today, as one who is tasked with shepherding your souls this morning through this sermon, I want to end by revisiting one of the central exhortations of the book. Um, and we're going to get ready to come to the table so you guys can come on up and get ready for that. But... Um, one of the central exhortations of this book, one of the central points made in this book is this question, this, can you call yourself a Christian and not really be a Christian? Or, you know, we could think about it, think about it in the ways of the Jews, you know, Jews who were not really Jews. Israel who was not really Israel, Paul says in Romans. Not all Israel was Israel. Can you be baptized, eat at the Lord's table, be a member of the church and still not be born again? Be faking it? And the answer is Yes. People fake it. Unfortunately, people fake it. And it's not good enough. This is why the author in Hebrews 3 says to exhort one another every day while we still have the opportunity to repent and receive life. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What is he talking about? What, when he's our original comp- what is he talking about hold it firm to the end he's talking about your faith in jesus he's talking about our faith in jesus he is our hope today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts but repent why because night is coming when no more work can be done john 9 4 says <coughs> so i want to think of it this way it's kind of morbid, so I apologize for that, but it's sometimes helpful to be a little bit morbid. Each one of us has a timer that is counting down. Each one of you has a timer that is counting down. And one day, that timer will come to the very end. One day, your heart will beat for the very last time. One day, your lungs will fill up for the very last time. I know, it's kind of morbid, but think about this. None of us knows how much time is left on our clocks. You may say, well, I'm pretty sick. I don't know. No, not a single one of us in this room knows what tomorrow holds. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. Nobody. But what we, what we do know is we have this moment right now. That's what we know. And so right now, I want to ask you a series of questions. Are you confidently resting in Christ or are you nervously eking out as many days as you can to live for yourself? Ah, oh, just one more day. Are you resting in Christ? Or are you eking out one more day to live for myself? Tomorrow I'll do it. 
Right now, are you seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness? Or are you chasing after worldly, temporal things that will not even matter a week from now or a month from now or a year from now? Are you right now satisfied with how Christ-exalting your life is? How Christ-exalting your race is? Are you satisfied? Before you come to the Lord's table, I want you to consider these questions. And as you come, consider just what it is your Almighty Father is inviting you to share in by coming to this table. He's inviting you to share in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's inviting you to share in eternal glory. He's inviting you to share in holiness. He's inviting you to share in beauty. He's inviting you to share in eternity. Get your eyes off of the temporal. Get your eyes off of everything else and fix your eyes on the kingdom. So come, Christian, come and welcome to Jesus. Please stand and receive your charge. So this morning, your charge, I asked you in the closing a series of questions, and I want you to know they aren't rhetorical questions. They aren't hypothetical questions. They're questions that I really mean for you to answer. Before God, we must be faithful. Christ's fellowship must be faithful. Or the terrifying warnings found in the book of Hebrews that we just got done over the past few weeks studying and reading and learning about, those terrifying warnings will become our reality, will become your reality. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for us. So we must be faithful. On the other hand, if even this small number of us, look around, small number, little bitty church, if even this small number of us will lean in, will lean in, will lean into faithfulness, to seeking the kingdom, to putting away the temporal foolish things that will not matter a month from now. If we will lean in, we will not be able to count the blessings. You will not be able to count the blessings. Blessings just like we're described in Hebrews chapter 11, all the way through. The blessing and the glory we receive, if we lean in, we receive, will be eternal. So I charge you then to be faithful, to lean in, to press on. I charge you to consider the things in your life that are waste of your time and energy and resources. To shake them off, to seek the kingdom, to seek the eternal. I charge you to spend yourself and don't hold anything back so that you are confident every day, that you are confident every day that whenever your appointed time comes, whenever your appointed time comes, you can look back on a Christ-exalting life, well-lived, well-spent.
We don't want to be the guy who gets to the end and has barns full. We want to be the people who get to the end of our race. We don't want to be the guy who gets to the end of our race and, and realize, you know what, I should have just pushed a little harder because I got it right here. We don't want to be those people. We want to be the people who get to the end and are spent and are drained, have nothing left. And we look back at glory, Christ-exalting sacrifice. Glory, Christ-exalting faithfulness. Lean into that. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.